Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Good afternoon. It's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most, on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Katanji Jackson. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. On Friday, President Biden nominated Katanji Brown Jackson to fill Stephen Breyer's Supreme Court seat, two years to the day that he pledged to nominate the first black female justice to the Supreme Court. This is Josh Gerstein. I'm a senior legal affairs reporter for Politico. Today, Josh Gerstein on everything you need to know about Katanji Brown Jackson, starting with how she won out and the behind-the-scenes negotiation that resulted in her nomination. You know, she had a fair amount of support in Washington. There was, uh, as you say, behind-the-scenes, quiet lobbying effort. But, you know, I think that she won out because she was sort of the favorite from the very beginning. Uh, You know, when Mm -hmm. President Biden had a chance last year to make his first nomination to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is considered the second most powerful court in the country. All the courts of appeals are sort of equal, but the D.C. Circuit is first among equals. And, you know, he he picked Jackson at that time. Part of what helps her, I think, is that her her background and resume is very much in sync with what liberal legal activists have been pushing the Biden administration to look for in terms of judicial appointments, not just to Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, but at all levels. And that actually is quite different from what the Obama administration was looking for in nominees. And, you know, I would say sharply different from what the Clinton administration before that was looking for in nominees. Hmm. They're really trying to find judicial nominees that have a record either of public defender work or some kind of public service, civil rights type uh, work. Uh, and, you know, in the past, it's been pretty standard for nominees to have a record as an assistant U.S. attorney, which is a prosecutor role. It's mm-hmm. a lot less common to have someone who's um, either a federal defender or a local public defender or has done criminal defense work for a long period of time. It sounds like Katanji Brown-Jackson was kind of the front runner all along, but I do remember hearing a lot of chatter about Michelle Childs and some of our Politico colleagues wrote about how the White House was kind of frustrated by the amount of this very vocal support that she was constantly getting. Right. I mean, you know, there's, I guess, two kinds of lobbying people do. One is um, quiet lobbying and the other part is sort of overt lobbying, by which I mean, you know, publicly going in front of TV cameras are talking to reporters or going on Twitter and saying, I think this person should be the nominee. And unlike the other two contenders, um, uh, Michelle Childs did have a certain number of people who were advocating for her openly, some of them of not of minor weight with this White House. Jim Clyburn uh, of South Carolina, the majority whip now in the House, you know, is somebody who's very close to Biden and his people. He arguably Mm -hmm. saved the Biden campaign back during the uh, presidential primaries in 2020. So he's somebody who whose calls are quickly returned by the Biden White House, let's put it that way. And he was pushing for Childs. What may have been complicated for her is not just that he was pushing for her. 
actually became kind of a thing where Republicans were pushing for her, people like yeah. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. And I think some business-oriented folks that you might consider more of Democratic moderates and so forth began pushing for her, feeling that she might have some more moderate tendencies than a couple of the other contenders. And so there was a sense that of the uh, three people that were considered finalists, that she might be the most moderate one, and then therefore the Republicans and and others uh, latched on to her. But again, when you have a White House that's trying to sort of stay in sync with its liberal base, it's not necessarily a positive for you uh, to have Republicans um, urging the president to, to, to pick you. So what do we know of Katanji Brown-Jackson's record? We know that there are already Republicans, some of the same Republicans who are pushing for Michelle Childs, um, who have attacked her nomination as sort of something from the radical left. But how much do we actually know about what kind of justice she's likely to be? To me, most of the clues about what kind of justice she's likely to be on the high-profile controversial issues actually come from indicators outside of the the, the black and white letters on the page of her judicial uh, rulings. Um, there are a couple mm. rulings that garnered a fair amount of attention that reporters and uh, others tend to latch on to. Uh, you know, she had a ruling uh, turning down former President Donald Trump's executive privilege bid to keep Don McGahn, his former White House counsel, from testifying in a House uh, investigation. Uh, that ruling, very pointed, she used words like presidents are not Kings, it was sort of an unsparing, uh, almost caustic towards the arguments that were being advanced by the Trump administration. Yeah. You know, that, of course, leads liberals to feel that she's definitely on their side. There was also another ruling um, that was later overturned that had to do with the uh, move the Trump administration had made to uh, expedite the process of expelling uh, certain people who had entered the country illegally. And she put an injunction on that that was later overturned by the the D.C. Circuit. But so you get those kinds of sentinel rulings, you might call it, that Mm. some people would say indicate where she's coming from. But if you look at the hundreds of decisions she wrote as a trial court judge in D.C., she was only on the D.C. Circuit for, I think we're talking about eight months now, seven or eight months, and only had two decisions that she actually wrote that came out. So, you know, there's not much there to look at. And frankly, most of the decisions she issued as a trial court judge, I think you'd be hard pressed to say, was this a Republican appointee or a Democratic appointee? Um, there are definitely judges whose records scream ideology one way or the other. And I think if you set aside the two decisions we discussed that dealt with those high profile Trump administration issues, you'd be very hard pressed to determine Um, what her ideological outlook is from those decisions. So then the question is, well, how does the White House know Mm. that she is sort of a reliable liberal voice? And I think the answer is much the same way that the um, Trump White House knew that Amy Coney Barrett, for example, would be a reliable conservative voice. You know, there's a lot of other indicators. What groups do you belong to? What kind of liberal scholars do you associate with? What kind of conferences do you go to? And what is your career path? What have you decided to devote time to? 
Mm-hmm. So as you said, one of the interesting things about Katanji Brown-Jackson is that she hasn't been on the appeals court that long. It was this Congress that oversaw her nomination to to that appeals court. And she was supported by all 50 Democratic senators and three Republican senators, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Lindsey Graham, who has since said that she's sort of radical left and has indicated that he doesn't support. How tough is her confirmation likely to be? Well, it depends what you mean by tough. Uh, yeah. if, you, if you mean is she going to get through, I would say there's like a 98% chance that she's going to get through. There would really have mm-hmm. to be an extraordinary event, something coming out about her background that has been hitherto unknown by anybody. Now, that said, if you mean are there going to be sparks and so forth, yes, Republicans are uh, very much in sync with the conservative legal movement. I think she's going to get uh, a serious grilling from some of the more right-leaning senators. You'll have others that are showboating because they're possible 2024 presidential candidates. So there's many mm-hmm. reasons why they may give her a hard time. The statement you talked about from Lindsey Graham is a good indication of that. Uh, you know, just uh, mm-hmm. eight or nine months ago, he voted to confirm her to the D.C. Circuit. She really hasn't issued many rulings since arriving there, and now he's saying. She's a product of far left activism, which is somewhat bizarre unless you use this frame uh, of the fact that, you know, we're judging people not so much by their rulings, uh, but in some respect by their friends and the notion that, you know, the f- the f- enemy of my enemy is my friend or something like that. Um, <laughs> you can then come out with an equation that says um, if if liberal legal activists are supporting this person, then this is someone that I um, need to oppose. And I just wanted to ask, is is there anything else that's especially interesting to you about her or this process that you wanted to highlight? Well, um, I think I mentioned this the last time we spoke, but it's worth keeping in mind some of the cases that uh, the Supreme Court has in its agenda and how, uh, if confirmed, Judge Jackson or then Justice Jackson could participate in them. I wrote yeah. a story on Friday talking about some of this and saying, look, whatever her ideological uh, outlook would be. And frankly, even though the Supreme Court is currently 6-3 and we're basically talking about replacing a liberal of some stripe with a liberal of another stripe, it's still going to be different if we have a Justice Jackson on the court than without her, even if she doesn't end up casting the deciding vote. And that's simply because, you know, as the first black woman on the court, she will be an African-American woman representing that perspective, at least to a degree, um, in the court's private conferences. And we know that they have taken two cases that could sort of set the future of affirmative action in college admissions for the next 20 or 30 years and possibly spell the end to, you know, any type of uh, accounting of race in college. Some of the scholars I talked to said, like, they're just confident that that's going to change the dynamic of that discussion. Does it end up changing the ultimate vote? I would say probably doesn't. And I would say that those policies, to me, based on the head count that I do, the vote count on the court, seem like they're doomed at this point. They've been hanging by a thread now for 10 or 15 years, and they really have seemed to be in trouble since Justice Kennedy left the court. Uh, There's really not Mm -hmm. clear where you would build a majority to support them anymore. That's something to keep in mind you know, I also wonder if there's anything about that dynamic that will impact the way the Senate handles this nomination and if Republican senators at all are going to 
try to think about framing their questions, maybe leaving topics like that aside and trying to question her about other issues, lest they be painted as, you know, diminishing or ignoring the historic aspect of this nomination. I wouldn't be surprised if many of them open their hostile questions with some kind of general comment about how welcome it is to have a African-American woman nominee in front of them uh, before they then uh, lit into her with whatever appointed, more ideological questions they may have. Josh Gerstein, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, happy to do it anytime. Also today, Capitol Hill leaders are retiring workplace masking policies, making masks optional throughout the Capitol complex ahead of Congress's return to Washington this week and Tuesday's State of the Union address. And as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky agreed to have Ukrainian officials take part in talks with Russia expected to take place today. And Germany this weekend announced it would send Ukraine weapons in a historic shift on military aid. The European Union also announced it will finance and deliver weapons to Ukraine. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.